chapter 17, verses 6 through 8. Man, I started out with no water. What's up with that? Come on. All righty. John 17, 6 through 8. Oh, thank you, dude. This is really not a break in the passage. I understand that, but I'm so slow, I can't do more than that. So, John 17, 6 through 8. It's a great passage. I've simply entitled this section or this part here Jesus identifies who his disciples are. And the context uh, a disciple, a follower of Christ, a Christian. All right, and then as a disclaimer, I don't know why, but I seem to be flirting with a headache, a migraine this morning, so if I say something really weird, uh, forgive me. All right, John 17, 6 through 8, wonderful words of Christ. Remember, this is Christ's prayer, and now he, he has prayed that he would be glorified, the Father would be glorified, so his primary was the glory of God, the glory of his self, back in eternity with his Father. Now he's going to move and transition into focusing his prayer towards the disciples. And he starts in verse 6. I have manifested, or I have revealed, your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you have given them to me, and they have kept your word. Now, they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know the truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Now, the priority of Jesus' prayer, as we began, is about giving his Father glory and receiving glory for having finished the work which he was given to do. This work primarily of redemption. The application of Jesus' redeeming work is applied to those whom the Father has given him. So in our text today, we will see who it is that the Father has given to the Son And what the Son has to say about those who are His disciples. So you can ask the question as we go through the message, would Jesus say this about me? Okay. So if Jesus says this is a disciple, would He be able to apply that to my my life? Now, I'm going to make the case a little bit that discipleship primarily has to do with the Word of God your relationship to it, okay? So primarily, we're going to understand our discipleship based upon our relation with God's Word. Jesus gives the words, and they are obviously God's words. He gives them to His disciples, and they keep the Word. Now, the Word is synonymous with the gospel, when you use the word logos in this kind of context, singularly, it says they've kept the word. It doesn't mean they've been sinlessly perfect, but the word of the gospel. Out of all their faults and failures and inconsistencies you would see of these disciples in, in the gospels, 
you'll also find this. They're not leaving Christ. They're staying with him. They fail. There's Peter for a moment. I don't know him. I don't know the man. But he, he just can't stay there. He starts weeping bitterly. And ultimately, they're attached themselves to Christ, and they're unwilling to look for another. Now, earlier in John 6, there's some that went away. They're not true disciples. These guys believe the word. Christ is the Messiah. He's the one. And so, come hell or high water, I'm with Christ. I believe that's their position. Now, let us look at this. The revelation of a true disciple, verses 6 and 7. The revelation of a true disciple. Look there again in your text, just to be reminded of the words here. I have manifested your name to the people whom you've given me out of the world. Yours they were, you gave them to me, they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. They have God's name revealed to them. This is the mark of a genuine disciple. The name of God, the character of God, who God is, is revealed to the disciple. The world is oblivious. The world reconstructs a God in their own image. They don't understand that God is holy, holy, holy. They don't know the nature of God. They don't know the workings of God. They don't understand who He is. That's why they say these nonsensical things like, you know, they try to recategorize what love is and say God is love, but they redefine it because the the truth is they don't know God. They've suppressed Him and they don't want to have nothing to do with Him. But the disciple, the follower of Christ, has God revealed to him. It does not mean that you know everything there is to know about God because he's unsearchable, right? He's beyond comprehension. But you know him in a relational manner. Why? Because that is eternal life, to know the only true living God. So he's been revealed. I love this term because I love exegesis. And exegesis means to exposit out of the scriptures what is there Eisegesis, you read something into it. Exegesis, you pull out what's actually there. Jesus Christ is the exegete of God the Father. Jesus pulls forth who God really is and discloses or reveals Him to His disciples. Let me give you the the verse where exegesis comes from. And that's in John 1.18, all the way back at the beginning of our book. In John 1.18, it says, No one has ever seen God. No one's ever seen Him. He's invisible, right? No one's ever seen Him. No one's ever seen the only God, the the one who's at the Father's side. This one Christ that is at His right side, He has exegeted Him. He has made him known, made him known, exegete, to bring out who God really is. Who God really is has been revealed to you. Think of this. There is no way 
in all of existence, no matter how intelligent your mind is, you could never understand who God is on your own intellect. You couldn't do it. You don't have the brain capacity to comprehend the infinite God. But as a disciple, this infinite God has been made known to you. He's been revealed to you. He's been explained to you by the Spirit of God, by Christ himself. These 11 at this point know who God is to the degree that what? In just a few short days... They'll give their very lives, and they will not deny, no matter how deep the persecutions come, no matter how many beatings come, how many cursings, how many banishments, how many exiles, bring one, bring all, we are staying with God because we have come to know who He is. He satisfies the soul of the disciple. So God's name, His character is revealed to those who have been given to the Son. It's almost as if you read that part that it's been manifested or revealed. His name has been revealed. It's like, is he quoting Moses? Is that, did he just stop here in this prayer, the, the second person of the Godhead, and did he just quote out of Exodus Moses? Would it be that the Son of God, in order to reveal God, would go back to the law of Moses and remind us of who he is? You say, why would you say that? Because this is what Moses said in Exodus 3, verse 13. Moses said, If I come to the people of Israel and I say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say, What is his name? They, what if they ask me that? God, what, what shall I tell them if they ask me your name? What, what am I going to say? And this is what God said to Moses. You tell them, I am who I am. You love it? There's no comparison to anything. He didn't say, I'm like, I'm like. He said, I am. I am. That's my name. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said this to Moses. Say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus, I am to be remembered throughout all generations. I am. This eternal being is revealed and made known to each one of his disciples. So that's there in the beginning of verse 6. Secondly, we find this about a disciple. We find in the next phrase, you gave them to me out of the world. Out of the world. This word here, forgive, means to put something into the care of another person. Yours they were, but now you've given them into my care. As D.A. Carson would be apt to say, they belong to God antecedently to Jesus' ministry. Before Jesus did ministry, these people belonged to God. He possessed them. He owned them. He elected them before the foundation of the world. And now he has given them into the charge or the care of the Son. And the neat thing about this being given is, is we're given out of this population of the world unto Christ. 
separated. Anybody ever done farming? Anybody ever been on a farm? You got goats, you got sheep. You separate those ones apart. You put these in this pen, you put these in this pen. It's a separation to identify the two different herds, right? Here we are, separated out from the world. We were just like everyone else, doing what everyone else did, and God has separated us out and given us unto the care of His Son. It's true of disciples. If you need an example, you could say, all the kids were in school on Monday morning, but a parent came and took his child out of the school. The child was a student like all of the rest, but his parent separated him from the others. That's what's happened here. We were a student of the world, but our father separated us out. So we are now set apart by the heavenly care of our God. Now, we've had God revealed. His name has been revealed. And we've been separated out of the world. The next thing you see about a disciple, they have kept. They have kept the Word. They've kept God's Word. Now, Again, I'm taking the singular in reference to the gospel, not to every law, precept, and statute in the Bible. But these have kept this word, that Christ is the Savior of the world. Christ is the Messiah. He is the sent one. He is the Son of God. He is the one come to redeem us from our sins. They've kept that word. They've held on to it. It's almost as if they've come to this point that unless, if Christ is not enough, there's no way we're going to heaven. We believe Christ. They've kept that word word. Persisting in obedience, observing, fulfilling, paying close attention to. They're fulfilling this desire to be committed unto Christ. Think about it, church. You sin. You, in a sense, apostatize for a season. You grow cold in your heart. The fire of the love of God fades. You you grow distant in your relationship. Your prayers grow cold. Your Bible study grows cold. Your devotions become obsolete and gone. It's like you, you feel like you're just dying on the vine and no fruit is produced. But then there's something within you that you just can't leave. You just, you can't give it up. There's some stirs inside and you're like, I need to read the Bible. I need church. I need to hear my pastor preach. I need Bible study. Something inside of you is driving you. Why? Because disciples keep the Word. It's like, I have to have this. I can't break it off fully. In a very real sense, God is keeping you. And in a very real sense, you're keeping yourself in the sense that you're applying these things daily to your life. It's true of these disciples as well as this of many of you. This is not new teaching. I give you a couple of reminders from uh, just a display of different texts. Matthew 28, 20. Teaching them to keep all things I've commanded you. John 8, 51. If anyone keeps my word. John 8, 55. But I do know him and I keep his word. John 14, 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. John 15, 20, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll keep yours. 
1 John 2, 5. Whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. This is how you can know. Are you a keeper of his word? Is the word of the gospel dear and true to your heart? Do you gravitate to Christ? Are you satisfied with Christ? Is that the position of your heart? Obedience is the highlighting characteristic of a disciple. Think about it. How can you be a disciple, follower of Christ, but not be a student of his word? How am I going to follow him but know nothing of what he has said? So I, I don't know if they're amusing or not, but it's as simple as this, at least in my mind. A caboose can only follow the engine it's connected to. It's the only way to do it. A water skier only follows a boat to where the rope is tied. A dog only follows the owner who's holding the leash. A disciple only obeys and keeps the word of the one who leads him. If you're a follower of Christ, you're attached to him by this book. That's what connects you and allows you to follow. I said it in Sunday school. I'll say it again. There's a desire within mankind to know and worship God. But the way they fulfill that desire is by wrong means. What do I mean by that? This is what I mean. We have a desire. Let's say you have a desire to be healthy. You have a desire to be healthy, and the way you meet that desire is you eat donuts every day. In order to be healthy, you have to eat, so you eat donuts. You say, that don't make any sense. That won't make me healthy. That's going to make me full of sugar. Right, that's not the right means to a healthy diet. Here's what people in the church do. They want to worship God. They desire God, so they want to know God. You know how they satisfy that? They watch YouTube videos. That's not the means to know God. People that are raised on YouTube and Twitter and social media, here's how they talk. Well, this is what I believe. Dear sir, why do you believe that? Well, because so-and-so said. I don't give a rip about Paul Washer and what he said. Paul's preached here before, but that's not the issue what Paul said. Well, you know, there was this video about this guy, and he said, I don't care what he said. Nobody cares what he said. No one cares. You want to know God? Then study this book. You ask me why I believe this about this. I'll tell you why I believe this about the Lord's day. Because Genesis 2 says this. Because Isaiah 53 says this. Because the Lord says this in the Sermon on the Mount. Because these texts teach this and they lay out this foundation. And I've studied all of these texts. And I believe the Word of God confirms my position on this issue. That's the means for being healthy in your knowledge of God. What am I saying to you? Don't feed yourself with YouTube and videos and popular preachers. Why don't you devote yourself to your local church and study God's Word for yourself? 
and come to a biblical position because you've meditated on the Word of God with fasting and prayer and ask God to give you clarity. And then you can say, I believe this and I'm resolved because God's Word says. And I memorized this text, this text, and this text. I've worked out those texts through church history. I've come to this position and come hell or high water, I stand here. I mean, could we not solve some issues about what we know? You want to you solve an issue of homosexuality? Let's look at Corinthians. Let's look at Leviticus. Let's look at Romans 1. Let's study the text and just tune out what everybody else says and see if we come to a conclusion that homosexuality is an abomination before God. You want to do women in ministry? You want to do women preachers? If the Southern Baptist Convention can't decide what a pastor is, how about we just read the Bible? Let's just read the Bible and see what the Bible says about the role of women within the local church. How about we read Timothy? How how about we look at what it spells out for ladies there and for men there? And let's come to the conclusion that this is what God says is the role. No matter what anybody else says. Have a desire, but gratify the desire about the things of God from the truth of God's Word. It's very important. And now, he says, now they know. If kept your word, verse 7, now they know. And everything you have given me is from you. They know. They've arrived at a knowledge. What do they know? (laughs) Interestingly, that all things, as many as you have given to Jesus, are from you. That's what they know. They have clearly come to know the relationship of the Father and the Son. This is expressed in the word give, which was used twice in verse 6. They've come to their knowledge in the past. They're currently abiding in the knowledge that all things, as many as have been given to Jesus by God in the past, currently still abide with him. One more time from D.A. Carson. They had come to deep conviction that Jesus was God's messenger, that he had been sent by God, and that all he taught was God's truth. Here's the conviction. Whatever Jesus says is what God says. Whatever Jesus preaches is what God preaches. It doesn't matter if all the Reformed pseudo-scholars of the world write a book about some goofy view of the covenant. This is what Jesus said. And if he said it, it's what God says. That's the position. He said they come to know. They come to know these things are from you. I would say there's not much difference here between the word knowledge and the word believe. But I do want to make a little distinction. Knowledge and belief are synonyms only when knowledge leads to obedience. Knowledge and belief are synonyms. They mean the same thing only when knowledge leads to obedience. You say, give me an example. Okay. I know that exercise, I know that exercise and diet will make me healthier, knowledge, but I do not believe it. What do you mean? Well, if I believed it, I would exercise and eat right. I know it's true, I'm just not going to do it. That means you don't believe it. You know, but you don't believe If you believe it, you would put it into practice. 
So you say, I know these things about God. I know these things about the gospel. I know these things are true. You only know them if you put them into application and practice in your life. These guys did. You say, you're the one. You're the one. Okay? How'd they put it into practice? Look at the book of Acts. Look at what they went through. Examine Paul's testimony. These guys gave everything that Christ would be exalted. They believed what they knew. There's a world full of people on the internet and writing books that have a lot of knowledge. But I don't know what they believe. You know what they believe by how they live it out in the local church in a context where they're held accountable for what they do. That's how you know whether they believe it or not. Look, anybody can say, I believe. Even the devil can do that. He can say he believes. All the hell can say they believe. They don't mean they're saved. To know is only a true knowledge of belief when it's applied in obedience. Now, the question is, would Jesus identify you as one of his disciples? You know who God is? You've been called out of the world. You keep the word, and you have a true knowledge that leads to obedience. Secondly, there's only two points. Secondly, here's the reality of a true disciple, verse 8. Very quickly, they have been given the words of God, the words which you gave, all these words. The words are necessary for a man to be a disciple. We're given to Jesus, and Jesus has given these words to his disciples. Let me give you examples Everything that is necessary for you to be a disciple of Jesus has been given to you in a book called the Bible. Everything you need. Think about it. A student in the classroom is given a textbook. It's probably online nowadays, but you used to get a textbook. And then a car owner, you may not know this, some of you guys pay attention. In the glove compartment when you buy a car, there's a manual. Tells you about your car. If you want to know something about why a light's on this or that, you look in the manual and you read it. And you go, oh, that's why this does this. A man who purchases a house is given a contract. In the contract, you have to read it to know your obligations for the house you bought. An athlete is given a playbook. Here's your book. Know your book. Execute the book. You must know the playbook. Don't come to practice without knowing the book. You have to study the book to play in the game. A disciple is given a Bible. This is the book you must know in order to follow Christ. Read it. Practice it. Memorize it. Meditate on it. Make it a part of who you are. This is the playbook. You want to be a disciple. In all cases, the person is only a disciple if he knows and obeys the book. Now, it says that there in verse 8. I've given them their words that you gave me. They have received them. They received the word of God. They accepted it as true. Now, this Greek word may have 10 definitions, and it does. But let me give you this in an example. What does it mean to receive this book? If the doctor gives you medicine and tells you that it will heal you, if you receive this information, you put the medicine in your mouth. If you set it on the counter, you brought it home and set it on the counter, you didn't receive it. You have to take it in in order for you to say you've received it. You will take the medicine as prescribed if you receive the medicine. If you receive this book 
as true, you will take it in. You cannot live off my preaching one little sermon a week. You can't do it. So if you're a receiver of the Word, then you're receiving this by daily application. Reading, thinking, questioning, memorizing, taking in God's Word, sharing it with your family, being a student of the book. That's what it means to receive. Now, words are given in lots of ways. Sermons, prayers, teachings, a lot of different things are done. We receive these things by humbling ourselves before them. Now, they also knew that Jesus came from God. Look there in verse 8. They receive them, and they have come to know in truth that I came from you. They've come to this knowledge that he, that he truly came from God. They knew that Jesus had an eternal abode in heaven, and he existed eternally, and he came forth from God into the world and is now standing before them. They've come to know this, to believe this. And the last line, they believe that God sent Jesus. <laughs> Look at the last line there in verse 8. They've come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. They were willing to risk their lives for Jesus because they truly believed God had sent him. I'm wearing out the doctor illustrations, but hopefully they might make sense to you in some way. But if you truly believe that a university sent forth a man to be a heart surgeon, and he sent him to the hospital, you would lay down and let him cut your chest open and move your arteries around and clean them out and put them back together you believe the university center. If you thought the guy was a quack, surely you wouldn't lay down and let him cut you open and do this work. But if you believed he was a verified heart surgeon, you'd literally lay down on the table and let a guy cut your body open and take your arteries out, take one out of your leg and put up here in your heart or whatever's necessary. You're like, you'd, people do that. Okay, if we believe, then we are willing to invest our lives into the work that Jesus has given us. We submit ourselves unto him no matter what may come. We trust him with our very lives. And they believe that you sent me. And I ask you this morning, do you believe that? In conclusion, Matthew 7, a passage you know well. So think about a true disciple, a follower of Christ, and close with the words of Christ. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them, well, that man is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it was founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them, well, he's like a foolish man. He builds his house on the sand. When the rain fell and the floods came, the winds blew, 
and beat against the house, it fell, and great was the fall of it. It's just the difference between a disciple and a non-disciple. What about you? Are you a disciple? You gauge that out by your relationship with this book. Is this your manual? Is this your food? Is this your satisfaction? Is this what leads your life? If, if you're not a disciple, repent. Turn from your sin. Trust Christ alone for your salvation. But for those of you who are disciples, could I encourage you to revisit the manual? Could I encourage you to find pleasure and joy in this book? Can I encourage a mom? Can I encourage a dad, a teenager, a young man? Can, can I encourage a little kid? This week I got a video from a little girl. Her name's Ellie. She's my granddaughter. And he had a little video, and she's quoting Genesis 1, 1 through 5. And like, it's like, yes, encourage your kids. Would you come to a position that you would love the words of God? Keep them, obey them, and live them out for the glory of King Jesus, for the good of your soul, and for the health of your local church. Let us pray as Tony comes to lead us in a closing song. Father in heaven, thank you so much for reminding us of at least one aspect of what it means to be a disciple, a follower of Christ. Help us to believe Christ. Help us to know the book and help us to live out in obedience the truths that are glaringly obvious in your book. Lord, so many spend so much time pursuing things they can't figure out when there is so much that is so clear that we ought to be about. Lord, help us to be obedient disciples, joyfully following our Lord and Savior. Pray these things by your Spirit. In Christ's name, amen.